0: Welcome to Bob's Last Marathon, where Lena Chow Kuhar shares her first hand experiences and practical wisdom gained from caring for her husband Bob on their long, unmapped journey with Alzheimer's disease. Through her own insights, as well as those of other caregivers, advocates, and experts, Lena hopes to help you meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease and give your loved ones the best quality of life possible. In an expert roundtable convened recently, Felicia Greenfield, executive director of the Penn Memory Center, and Dr. Barry J. Jacobs, a noted clinical psychologist, family therapist, and healthcare consultant, discussed self-care for the caregiver. Katie Brandt, Director of Caregiver Support Services and Public Relations for the Massachusetts General Hospital Frontotemporal Disorders Unit, was moderator. In the second of two podcasts, excerpted from the roundtable, they review barriers to self-care and highlight techniques to overcome these barriers as they answer questions from the audience.
1: I think that there are two primary categories of barriers to self-care. And one of them is internal barriers to self-care, things within us that make it difficult for us to engage. And then there are external barriers. External barriers sometimes look like a lack of time. Oftentimes people are working full time in the workforce, have a family that they're caring for, a spouse, children, and then they're caring for a parent with dementia. And that's a lot of responsibility. So at the end of the day, there's very little time to dedicate towards oneself. Another external barrier could be financial. Sometimes self-care requires you to get some respite, to get a break so that your loved one is not left alone. And to hire someone to come into the home can cost a significant amount of money and it's not covered by insurance. So sometimes that's a real barrier to getting a break as well as perhaps a lack of a social network. There just aren't friends or family readily available to help. So those are some concrete examples of external barriers to self-care. And then internally, sometimes people feel really guilty about prioritizing their self-care. When they know that they have somebody who needs them, it feels a little bit selfish to, to carve out that time. Sometimes folks might avoid going to the doctor out of fear that something really might be wrong. And so, you know, better not to know so that we can just proceed forward. Sometimes another barrier could be the belief that, well, what's the use? It won't really help. Nothing will really get better if I take care of myself or the belief that no one will help. Maybe you've asked somebody a couple times for help and were turned down and so you feel discouraged. And then finally, I would say, maybe you're a person who never really took care of yourself. Um, and so now asking you to take care of yourself in the context of caregiving just feels impossible. Just a few ideas about what I have heard from folks who might be struggling with prioritizing their self-care.
2: I'd like to take the opportunity to ask the audience, You know, how does this resonate with you? Which of the following are barriers to self-care for you? Time, no one can help, money. I hadn't thought about self-care. So we see here over half of our participants are reporting the resources of time and actually having folks to help them.
3: It actually pains me to see that so few people have people there to help them. That's, that's quite sad. Um, one of the self-care skills I think we all need to have is how do we elicit help from other people, maybe even people who are reluctant to help us. How do we uh, cajole them into helping us in a way? The issue of time is, is a very difficult one. I'll just say one of the most important self-care skills that there is is what's called compartmentalization and that is setting aside an hour or a half hour that is your time that you protect no matter what, and you don't let caregiving responsibilities intrude on that time. It's very easy to allow caregiving demands to just kind of infiltrate every moment of your life unless you're careful, and it takes a lot of intention to really protect time and compartmentalize it and protect it.
1: Jumping off of what Barry said, cajoling family and friends for help, I want to share a couple of tips on how to do that. So what you want to do first is identify who is in your network, who could help. Think about a specific request that you have. How could this specific person help you with your specific request? You know, there are different communication styles and communication styles on a continuum go from passive communication to aggressive communication. Passive communication is when you kind of shut down and don't really advocate for yourself or ask for help. And aggressive communication, people with that kind of style tend to be more demanding. And neither one of those, either demanding nor denying your needs, are going to help you to get the help you need. Meeting in the middle and using assertive communication is one way to be successful in getting the help you need. So to do that, you want to be able to have your specific ask in mind and explain to the person why you need it, why it's important for you to get the break to take care of yourself in this very specific way, and then negotiate the terms with the person you're asking. So for example, if you want to go to see a performance at some point, First, get the buy-in that somebody will be available to sit in for you so that you can get out and go to a performance, but then negotiate, well, what day of the week could it be? What's good for you? And then buy your ticket around that time if you have some flexibility in that, just so that it's harder for them to say no when you are letting them kind of dictate the when or even the how. If the person is reluctant to help the first time, just restate your case find another way to express why it's important for you to get this break. And then once the person does help you out, really express your gratitude. Tell them how important it was for you and how grateful you are, and then maybe even offer to do something for them or bake them cookies or something just as a gesture to say thank you.
3: I was hoping you would say cookies. That's the key, I think.
1: Is that what would get you to help out, Barry? Cookies? Yeah.
3: (laughs) Anybody will do anything for cookies, for sure. (laughs)
1: Another way to seek help, if not for respite, is through a professional. So finding a counselor or a therapist, that is an act of self-care in and of itself. Just getting someone to meet with you for an hour once a week or every other week where you can just vent and process your experience with that person and get their insight or perspectives have them hold you accountable for your self-care. The way to find a therapist is to consider finding a therapist who has experience in aging, caregiving, or Alzheimer's disease. And you can do this by checking in with your physician to see if they have any referrals or even call your mental health provider on your medical insurance and ask who's in your network who specializes in these things and they'll help match you with someone. Another resource is a website called Psychology Today. It's a database of therapists who you can plug in who you're looking for, and then you can review their profiles and start by reaching out to different folks who are available to you online. Another kind of sidebar to that is through a support group. So connecting with a group of people going through a shared experience can really be a lifeline for people. And there are resources on Bob's Last Marathon resource site or the Alzheimer's Association if you are looking for support groups that will work well for you. I do want to say that the fit has to be right. So I wouldn't discard it if the first time you go to a group doesn't feel right. Try another group. Eventually, you'll find your people
3: so we mentioned mindful breathing and mindfulness in general the term mindfulness has been kicked around now for about 10 years in the popular culture but i still think it's very confusing for a lot of people as to what it is so i'll just say briefly mindfulness is a definition is non-reactive awareness to do certain exercises to help us kind of deal with whatever's going on in our life without having a huge reaction to it, to be able to abide it as much as possible. And when people think about mindfulness exercise, sometimes they think about, well, it's going to be meditation. I'm going to have to get in the full lotus position on the floor. I can't get, you know, it's going to hurt my knees. It doesn't have to be anything like that. And when I introduce mindfulness to folks, the most basic things that I work on with them is something called the five senses exercise. And you can look up five senses exercise online. It'll come up very quickly. It's basically to helping people focus on the present moment to not be worried about what's going to happen in the future or have regrets about what happened in the past but simply to be present it's a very simple exercise i I will say to folks i'd like to right now focus on five things that you can see give a few moments for that four things that you can hear three things that you can touch two things that you can smell one thing that you can taste and when people focus on their senses, they almost automatically draw themselves into the present and it becomes very relaxing for them. That's the easiest and most basic example of mindfulness that I recommend, the five senses exercise. And the other thing I'll just mention very briefly is I'm a big uh, lover of nature and just the ability to even look out the window and, and watch the birds at the bird bath, or to... Uh, to take a walk down the block and look at the trees or, or if you're so inclined to identify the trees, uh, to see where the trees are in the seasons. Are they budding? Are they leafing out? Are they turning different colors at this time of year? Again, that focus on nature is a way of bringing one, oneself into the present and it's a very uh, beneficial way of spending time and it's a very important way of caring for oneself. the most basic format for breathing exercises is to breathe into your gut. You don't want to breathe in your shoulders because that looks like this. You know, your shoulders go up and down, that's that's very shallow breathing. But when you breathe into your belly, you get a much deeper breath and that has a much better physiological effect. And to really try to focus on one thing as you're breathing and that could be very hard because the mind naturally jumps around from topic to topic. So what I often do is try to come up with a relaxing visual image, sometimes having people imagine they're lying on the beach, and while they're imagining lying on the beach, just to breathe uh, slowly and steadily, and that tends to put them in a more restful state of mind. There are many, many ways of doing mindful breathing, but that's one.
2: Felicia, one of the questions is specifically related to feeling guilt when asking for help from friends or family?
1: It's a great question. I think it couldn't hurt to seek support around that through a therapist and to practice role-playing asking for help. I think calling on your assertive communication style and really believing that you need this help and why you need the help. I think that sometimes caregivers don't know how to ask for help and their ask is broad. I think that people will be more responsive if the ask is specific. So, really believing that you need help and being able to express why you need help, asking in a way that is specific, I think, is a way to get the support you need.
3: If I could offer a quick example of that, I worked with a caregiver years ago who had an index box with index cards. And when someone said, oh, you know, let me know what I can do to help, she would open the index cards and say, pick a card and every card has something very specific written on it, like mow the lawn or pick up groceries or go to the drugstore, giving people choices. But just as you said, Felicia, each of the tasks was very specific and that will increase your chances of getting a positive response.
2: I think there's a really important question here about specifically discussing the issues facing caregivers who are not spouses, but adult children of their loved ones living with dementia. Really two issues, one, What if that relationship is imperfect? And then two, balancing being a sandwich generation, caregiving and parenting at the
1: same time. Well, I would say that the imperfect relationship is a particularly challenging one that I've seen people really struggle with. And that's where therapy really comes into play, like working with somebody to process what happened in the past. When a parent and a child have a complicated relationship, the dementia diagnosis kind of takes away the ability to repair that relationship over time. And so it's a lost opportunity for the adult child to have the opportunity to process that with a therapist so that they can come to a place of forgiving the parent in order to, to support them in their illness, I think is, is going to be critical.
3: In regards to the sandwich generation, which is a big topic unto itself, I would just say all of us have multiple family roles that we have to attend to and we can't put all of our time and energy into one of those roles, be it a caregiver or a spouse or, you know, a parent to our children. Somehow we have to figure out ways, we can't clone ourselves unfortunately, but we have to to divide our time up in a way that is fair to everybody uh, involved, including ourselves, and then for us to accept that we have limits as human beings and that we're not going to be able to be a perfect parent and perfect caregiver and perfect spouse all at the same time, that there are compromises that can be made. And so that helps reduce the self-criticism that sometimes makes sandwich caregiving so difficult. I think when people think it through and come up with a plan and then fine tune that plan over time, they'll do the best that they can. And that's really all we can ask anybody to do the best that they can.
0: Thank you for listening to the second part of our Experts Roundtable on self-care with a focus on the barriers to self-care and strategies for overcoming them. Transcripts of today's show and other episodes and acknowledgements can be found at bobsmarathon.com. That's Bob's Marathon without an apostrophe. Send us a note with your comments. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We wish you and your loved ones good health.